Hello. 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 Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I'm here. Oh, <laughs> call recorder cannot start recording this call. Uh-oh. What is wrong with you, call recorder? Hmm. My, my call recorder is working. Damn. Damn you, call recorder. Recording problem. Recording problem. Hmm. Uh, That's better than a Skype can't make the phone call calling problem. I, that is tell, – tell me about it, Don. Tell me, tell me all about it. Well, let me tell you about it, Ben. <laughs> Apparently, uh, several days ago, you and I uh, tried to record a podcast, but we were unsuccessful. Because <sighs> Skype died. Because of the people at Microsoft – is that what it was? It was Microsoft? Well, they own it. Did, did, you, did you ever hear, like, what the actual cause was? I did not. Uh, I, I, I didn't research it. I, I don't know either. You know what? Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> not, like, not to be too uh, um, uh, obtuse. Is that the – I'm not sure if I'm using that right. Uh, not to be an ob- obtuse triangle. But um, <laughs> the fact that Skype failed us is what matters. The reasons why I have no, uh, I have no time for. I got no interest. They just, I mean, they they mess it up for us. Yeah, you're you're a busy man, and they they let you down. They disappointed you, and so uh, now uh, they're dead to you. Oh, Skype schmipe, <laughs> Skype tripe. <laughs> have you ever had tripe? I don't think I have. It sounds disgusting. I've seen tripe. I've seen it. We I have seen it in the uh, in the grocery store, uh, huh. in, the, in the supermarket, as it's called in, in the UK. Is that? <laughs> And is, is, is tripe is that a, is that a is that a southern thing or is that a I, European I so. thing? It's not a Canadian it's, thing. No, it's it's I've only seen it here huh. in uh, in the um, let's see it, it's French. <laughs> je je ne sais pas. It is from it is tripe from the French tripe. <laughs> uh, I think it's pronounced tripe. Tripe, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's an edible offal. From the stomach, uh, it's awful edible. Uh, I mean, it's it's, it's uh, anyway. It's it's ed- it's awful. Uh, I'm not sure if it's edible. It's uh, from various farm animals. That sounds like uh, <laughs> just a amazing uh, food safety concern. Very various unspecified uh, farm animals. Beef tripe is usually made only from the first three chambers of a cow's stomach. Huh. I uh, did have I did have uh, a cow stomach at one point in France. That's right. Yeah, and right. it it was gro- it was really it was as, gro- as gross as you would think. Yes, yes, I did have it because um, I was in France. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, we I was in France. I was having fantastic food. Every meal was better than the next, and I just kind of said, what? "Every meal is fantastic in France. That's that's how food is." And so I'm going to order the stomach of the cow. Because who knows? It, if I'm going to eat it somewhere, it's going to be. Here, where it's fantastic, and it looked it looked just like the Wikipedia pictures, and it tasted just like you would expect, like uh, faintly flavored, faintly dis- disgusting um, sheets of rubber. Wow. Well, I've had andouille sausage. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. Andouille, andouille, andouille. <laughs> You're thinking of andouille publicam. Who's a right winger for the Quebec Nordique? Uh, no, Andouille <laughs> sausage, which I didn't realize was uh, tripe, poached, boiled, and smoked cold tripe sausage. I've not. I've had it hot. It looks like I've had it like what it looks like in its Wikipedia page. Huh? Creole Andouille. Yeah, I've had that. That looks I li- good. I liked it. It's uh, um, 
I've, I've had it in, in a Cajun dish, in a, mm. uh, in a jambalaya. I think I have too. And it's, yeah, it's much better when it's made into sausage as opposed to just uh, on the plate sitting there like a sheet of rubber. Yeah. Ooh. Wow. That's quite, that's, that's just tripe. It's <laughs> just tripe. So, so, yeah, Skype failed us for two days mm-hmm. or for a day. I mean, then we couldn't get our schedule to work. And then uh, we had a backup plan, but uh, but I'm, I've I've been like looking forward to this. This is maybe what we should do is have like a failed Skype attempt, and then two days later have you know like it builds anticipation between between us. Like we're gonna, between us or with the listeners. <laughs> oh, I I don't even think I, you know, you know that the listeners don't don't come into play for me. I don't even know if people listen to this. Well, so so we will we will link to in show notes um, a blog post uh, called uh, uh, Skype outage colon an update and an apology. So, uh, you know, I, I think from a risk communication perspective, uh, that might be a pretty good might be pretty good risk messaging. An update and apology from the yeah. Skype. So, like, what Skype happened? Blogs. And 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 we're sorry. It was a larger than usual configuration change. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just the guy totally clear. I mean, you have your usual configuration change, and then you have your larger than usual configuration change, and sometimes um, you're unable to process correctly, uh, therefore disconnecting users from the network. I hate it. I hate it when I get disconnected from the network. And others couldn't sign in or out of Skype altogether. Could you imagine if you just couldn't sign out? <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! They're still recording the podcast. Yeah, Why like, won't they shut up? Yeah, well, we just can't. We can't uh, get out of <laughs> Skype. We just have to keep going. Skype for business was not impacted. We need Skype for this is business. This is business. Business. This is business with a Ser- D. Serious business. Z. Yes. Business. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that was nice. Our our apologies. Wow. They well, do. They don't know. They don't know what they what they caused this. Actually, they they, uh, they said, uh, you know, uh, we know many of you needed to use Skype, and finding that you couldn't would have been incredibly frustrating. That they, they, they nailed it. It was incredibly it was frustrating. frustrating. We had a um, like a forty eight minute long. Uh, tr- let's try something else. Let's try this. Let's try that, and it and just didn't happen. Yep. Yep. So, eh, well, there you go. Hey, um, so so we we check check off my list. Hang on, I'm gonna make a noise like I'm. That's me checking a list. Okay. Uh, Skype. Talk. Talk about. Talk about Skype. Um, I have other things to talk about. So we we had a unofficial podcast which was not recorded while we were while we FaceTimed about mm-hmm. about this. And you mentioned to me, um, you asked me if I had updated to iOS nine. Yes. And I said I don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, no, I know what it is, but I didn't even know it existed. I just haven't been paying attention the last couple of weeks, and uh, and now I have. I have updated my my phone to iOS nine, and it's Don. It's the little things, mm-hmm. and I like it. You know what I really like about iOS nine? What? The way that my the font the uh, the way that my letters look when they're small. Uh, oh, on, yeah, on, uh, like on, on the keypad. Yeah, like a little. Oh, oh, like lowercase. You mean lowercase? But yeah. they're lowercase in a different because they were always lowercase. But now they're I don't know they're like spacier or something. Oh, it's the San Francisco font. It's, the, hey. it's a font. The, the operating system has a new default font. I think that's I what you're talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I didn't know. I don't know what it was, but it was great. Yep. Yep. Um, it's just the font. Just the just yeah. Just the font. Just the just the font. Just the font, ma'am. 
Um, yeah, well, and the other thing, the other nice thing about upgrading to iOS 9, and, and here's another thing if you haven't done it yet, um, is once you upgrade to iOS 9, that allows you to upgrade to Watch OS 2. Watch OS 2. Is it here? It's here. What? No. It's here. When, when did that happen? Uh, the other day. Like, uh, yeah, just like right after right iOS after- 9. So wait, so 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 that's I've got I don't I Ben, you are so out of the Apple loop. Uh, it's my, there must be a lot loop. of stuff going on in the food safety world because because clearly know. you're not paying attention to Apple. I don't even know I don't know what's going on, Don. I'm gonna have to deal with my iOS nine update. So is that so is that embedded into this mm. uh, is watch iOS like no. do I have to do No, you else? have to you have to go into the the watch app on your phone okay, and okay. update. But don't do it now. No, no, I mean, I, Cause, I'm not going to do it now. Because then, you know, it'll it'll take up all of your bandwidth. And I know you only have like the rubber, the you know, the the tin cans and the string down there. So yeah, you know, true. it would slow things down. We use our tin cans and string to make uh, banjos um, <laughs> as well. It's, <laughs> it's the south. It's the south. So we have we have a lot of banjos. We have uh, um, we have a lot of we have tripe. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and banjos. That's what we're known for. Mm-hmm. I put my phone down because I didn't want the, I, I didn't want the temptation to update to iOS <laughs> or to watch OS two. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about it though. Does it does it do better stuff for you? Well, you know, um, I have not fully investigated what all it can do. I did notice it does something nice when you're doing a workout. Um, when you when you save the workout at the end, it used to be there was just sort of no message. So you had this feeling of like, well, I, I guess that I saved think, my workout. Yeah, yeah. And now it has a little check mark, a little animated check mark, kind of like that that sound that you made before when you were checking something off your list, except oh. a visual a visual of that. Um, yeah, there we go. Perfect. Um, it's like it's like we're an old timey radio station. <laughs> I got the uh, Foley group here. Yeah, Foley, very good. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's nice. Um, other than that, oh, and I do I do have a new uh, watch face that I'm trying out, which is like I used to have. Uh, well, I still have it, but but the I was using before I was using the. Um, uh, what's called the uh, utility face, uh, and now I'm using something called uh, the uh, time lapse face, um, and I'm using the Lake Mac, which is basically so. Basically, what you do when you pick up your watch and you look at it, it just sort of it's it's a it's a video that was shot. They have a couple of them, so they have uh, Lake Lake Mac, which is a beautiful lake lake scene, uh, but they or Mac Lake, sorry. Uh, they have New York City, they have Hong Kong, London, Paris, Shanghai. And then basically you can choose that as the background, and so it has a little day and date and hour, and then and then an animation which shows the correct time uh, for based on what time it is now for that location, and then it sort of like flies through the day. So like you can see like okay the sun's coming up or whatever, or the sun's going down. Anyway, it's it's very cool. So um, that's amazing. So I uh, also currently use the utility face. Mm-hmm. So had we not had this discussion, I wonder if I would have also changed uh to time lapse with uh with like mac like yeah. if, uh, if we were just so in sync that we <laughs> we pick the exact same time faces well now now i've ruined that for you by by spoiling it so you know, no, um, no, 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 I'm, I'm okay I'm, I'm actually just i'm uh 
I'm excited that we picked the utility in the first place yeah. <laughs> together there, independently. But there's a uh, – actually, there's a very good um, <clears throat> review. Uh, I, so I've been listening to the to the nerds on the podcasts uh, talk about um, uh, iOS 9 and, and uh, watchOS 2. Um, and there's a very good review by a guy named Rene Ritchie um, who I think might be Canadian um, uh, uh, on the iMore website, um, which is a, a review of uh, uh, watchOS 2, which I which – I, would recommend that you read. I mean, if you want to know like everything about it, so I'm gonna check it out. Rene Ritchie, uh, he's um, Canadian blogger. <laughs> there you go. I figured yeah. the name like Rene Ritchie. I mean, Rene, my God, yeah. can you be more Canadian? <laughs> uh, no, and he's from uh, from the from the Canadas somewhere <laughs> from the upper the upper Canadas, the upper peninsula, as they the call upper, it. Pen- yeah, the upper the UP, the UP uh, just north. It's on. I'm pointing to my hand. It's up here. <laughs> Up here, Tom. It's on the it's on the it's on the ring finger. Got it. Uh, that that portion. That of, part of Canada that's in Michigan. That, the, yeah, the the Michigan Canadian idiots. Oh, Don, it's a silly a silly afternoon for podcasting. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling I'm feeling silly. I've had, um, you know, we, this is the time of the podcast where we talk about the things we've drink, we've we have consumed, mm-hmm. what we have uh, had in, in for a drink. Mm-hmm. I have uh, I'm on you know I'm I'm on an espresso thing. You know, I've talked about that uh, multiple times. And, mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a, uh, three Nespresso pods this morning. Uh, wow. Longos. That's that's my normal. That's I, I do a I do a two, and then I add a third one as I leave the house to sort of warm it warm it up. And then Don today mm-hmm. here's the, here's the here's the kicker. I knew mm-hmm. I was going to talk to you, mm-hmm. and this might be it might sound like I'm on, I'm on one and a half speed for the entire <laughs> hour plus of this podcast. Uh huh. Because I had a Starbucks reward. That was burning a hole in my pocket. Oh yeah, ah, Don, I have a venti quad vanilla non-fat latte. Do you know what that is? Venti. So venti is the biggest size. Quad is four shots. Yeah. Uh, vanilla latte. That's a that's a lot of shots, Ben. Four. It's a four. I, I dropped I dropped the quad here. That's wow. It. Yeah. So I've got that, and I'm I'm trying to. I'm sure this is not the way I'm supposed to do it, but I'm drinking that as I dilute it down with uh, with some tap water as well. Uh, not not in my latte, like I'm, I'm uh-huh. alternating, like a mm-hmm. like a like a, a chaser. Got it. Um. So so yeah. So I've got I'm I'm prepared. I uh, I've been we I, we haven't talked for a couple of weeks, but I'm I I, don't, I haven't told you I'm I'm like working out a lot. You you mentioned that I think on the I last t- podcast. Well, or on a podcast I was listening to. So I was listening to the whatever the last one that I that I, that we just posted or that I'm almost yeah. ready to post. And you were talking about how many miles a month you were running and yeah yeah. So I've been um, and then I've been eating better. Like mm-hmm. eating eating not. I, I, what what we're trying to do is like fulfill and walk this line of satisfying meals that are not really bad for us. You know, like, like, uh, so, so anyway, I, what, what I've been doing is I buy a uh, chicken breast or sorry, a turkey mm-hmm. breast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, deboned turkey breast sometimes, sometimes with bone in, depending on what's on, what's on sale. And I roast that like once a week. And then Danny and I use that turkey meat in, uh, in wraps or in salads and stuff. I've been eating a lot of turkey meat, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, cause it's like a good, uh, protein to fat ratio. Uh, as as the interwebs say, um, and so I had like a lovely uh, turkey pico de gallo goat cheese wrap that I made. Myself. Oh my gosh, that sounds fantastic! It was really good. 
It was really good. Um, and it's, it's become a go-to and I'm also eating a lot of, um, I, I like a, like a breakfast taco mm-hmm. with one egg and pico de gallo and goat cheese. You might note that I eat a lot of pico and goat cheese. Well, you know, we, so breakfast tacos is a, is like a go-to at our house where you have some scrambled eggs and some turkey bacon and, uh, and then, you know, usually whatever, whatever, you know, either homemade salsa or, or, or fresh salsa from, from the store. And it's a, just, it's a really filling and relatively low calorie, uh, breakfast. So yeah, highly, highly recommended. Yeah. And low, low, I'm, I'm all about the low carb, low carb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Low mm-hmm. carb. I mean, We've we've switched. I haven't eaten a, a slice of bread mm. for uh, six weeks, maybe. Like no, I'm I'm like off. I'm all I'm all like wraps and and tortillas, um, which is yeah. I'm trying to. I'm, I'm thinking about that stuff. Cool. So so anyway, it's working. It's working out. But I had a, just a, a just a lovely lunch, uh, and and my my snacks are currently. Um, Usually a, uh, a handful of almonds and some craisins. Craisins, I mean, mm. it's, it's, there's a little bit of sugar in there, but, mm-hmm. but I like them. I like them. And Linda, or Linda Harris, who does listen to this podcast mm-hmm. from both ends, um, is uh, she's the almond queen. And mm. I, I am. Oh, she, you know when she comes to visit, she always brings almonds. Does that does she does that happen to you too? She never visits me. She never visits you. She come. She came to visit me earlier this year. It was great. We had a good time. <laughs> I think I think she may be coming to speak at our affiliate, but no, and 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 it's you know I mean why would she come to visit New Jersey? I mean, please, right? I know it's not that I I don't I don't begrudge her not visiting at all. You do. It sounds like you do. Not at all. Um. So to date our podcast, I do want to mention that I read something this morning about New Jersey, kind of the like a, a somber story uh, about uh, Yogi Berra passing away. Yeah. It's a New, Jer- uh, New Jersey guy. Well, yeah. sort of. I mean, yeah. he's lived in New Jersey for like the last 60 years. Yeah. And so uh, I, 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 you know, we, we know not, not, uh, not that Yogi's into uh, food safety or anything, but from a baseball standpoint and a cultural standpoint, kind of a, like a notable figure and did not realize, I knew he, he played, Baseball very well and played with the the New York Yankees. Did not realize that he won ten World Series, which is in the sports ball world. That's a lot. That's a lot of World Series. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> no, no one's got that kind of World Series clout. Well, you know, it's <clears throat> it's funny because Kristen said to me this morning. She said, "Did you know that Yogi Berra was still alive, uh, or at least <laughs> <laughs> until he just until died yesterday?" Until <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was like, "I think I knew that." Um, and, uh, and but also, actually, I'm very pleased because I uh, talking about tying it in and dating us, I just got back from Brazil. And while I was in Brazil, one of the things that I did was I gave a talk at the uh, Ninth International Conference on Predictive Modeling in Foods entitling, entitled uh, Modeling Risks Associated with uh, Viruses and Parasites in Food, um, which apparently I, I know something about because apparently I've done some research. I've collaborated with people who work with viruses. But um, in, in giving the, the talk, um, the, the setup was that I was supposed to be the keynote for a session on modeling viruses and parasites. Well, as it turned out, there were no talks submitted on modeling viruses (laughs) and parasites. And so part of my talk was about that, right? And why there haven't been talks and an exhortation to people to give, to, to think about for the 10th conference to do that. But I, in opening my remarks, I I made the comment to kind of, you know, explain it. Uh, I, I used the quote, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Now I have heard that quote 
attributed to Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist Niels Bohr, but I've also heard it attributed to Yogi Berra. And it very much sounds like a yogiism. But then I wanted to, because to, it's an international audience, I wanted to explain a little bit about Yogi Berra. And so I explained he was a you know baseball player and very famous for you know s- sort of these these uh, non sequiturs or these 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 humorous uh, 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 expressions. And and then I shared four great Yogi Berra isms with the group, um, and which I will share with you now. Um, n- nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. I saw that one in the New York Times obituary this morning. Yeah. Um, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical, Excellent. which which is very good for a statistically inclined audience. Um, you can observe a lot just by watching. That's a good one. That's for me. And then, and then again, the, 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 the best Yogi Berra quote ever, I never said most of the things I said. <laughs> that was, in fact, the subtitle of his autobiography. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so anyway, so I shared I shared that a little bit, and it's made even more poignant realizing that that he's passed. But he was certainly uh, one of the one of the great ones, without a doubt. I um, th- there are a couple that that made my list. So I, I you know I did a little uh, yogi deep dive on the on the mm. interwebs mm-hmm. uh, today, and and so uh, let me let me preface this was with I didn't realize and because i'm you know i'm a young i'm a young guy i'm a young man some days i feel old but i'm i'm fairly fairly young in in this uh you know baseball uh world and i i didn't really sort of piece together timeline of yogi bear and yogi Berra. oh yeah mm-hmm. and i thought yogi Berra's nickname yogi came from the bear yogi bear mm-hmm. but in fact it's the other way around yes i'm sure you knew that but i didn't know and then i told danny that and that blew her mind yep um so um, I like the "it gets late early" out there mm-hmm. as uh, one of my one of my favorites, and he was uh, awarded in 1947 uh, a day in St. Louis because that's where he's from originally, and it was Yogi Berra Appreciation Day. And his opening remarks were, "I want to thank you for making this day necessary," <laughs> which, which is awesome. Oh man, Yogi Yogi Berra. But uh, so for our you know crossover sports ball fans and the uh, in the food safety world, um, he he was uh, he was caught he was a really good catcher and he caught uh, a perfect game in the World Series in 1956. So he didn't pitch it. Don Larson uh, pitched it, and he uh, that's the only perfect da- perfect game in World Series time ever. Hmm. Yeah. I have a question for you because sure. I know you're not you're not a big sports guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you like you like the figure skating. <laughs> no, no. Now let's 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 be clear. I uh, my wife watches figure skating, and I sit on the couch and play on my computer while she's watching figure skating. But yes, that's fine. That's in fact how I watch baseball. <laughs> I watch baseball and sit on my couch and play on my computer while I'm watching it. So I I understand. Yeah, I it's baseball. I mean, you don't really have to pay attention. Right, you don't. Um, so. Uh, being that you you like math and you're a math guy, has has there ever been any interest in the baseball statistics side of things for you at all? Like, is it is it ever been like you know I'm the people are into statistics and I and this is a, it's a math thing? Yeah, I'd, zero, zero, yeah, zero. Okay. Except except for 
a vague interest in, um, and I forget what it's called, but it's it's that it's that sports thing that you do fantasy fantasy oh, yeah. football fantasy baseball like i love the idea that you would that you would take this statistics and you would put it into a game that where you would have these like like these fake teams that are based on real statistics and the, the, again the closest that i ever came to doing that was and I think we've talked about it on the podcast before um, when I was not when I was a young uh, young person and not not playing sports or not playing sports much. I mean, I played I played youth hockey up until I got pneumonia, but um, which I think we've talked about before we too. Have, have, um, and uh, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but Dungeons and Dragons, which is all about probabilities and statistics and rolling dice. And so back in the day before, I think we had computers to help us with with our fantasy sports leagues. I think that that was all done with dice, and so. So that that idea of that interested me, but never enough to where I would go and play it or or hang and not didn't even really hang out with the kids who would be playing that because those were mostly like kind of the the kids that were into sports were also into right. like fantasy fantasy football or fantasy baseball. Huh. That's I, yeah. I mean that's the, the that's it. I've, I've you know I'm 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 vaguely interested in math. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I, I I've enjoyed. I mean, over the last like four years that we've done this, I'm much more interested in the in the mathematics side of what we do in food safety. And I and I feel like I can talk a decent game in it. Um, but I've always been into. I mean, baseball. The draw for me has always been the the statistics side of things. And I think I'm not sure if we've talked about this, but the only video games that I play now and have ever played in a console computer ipad way for the for the most part are games where i amass statistics and largely it's been sports games so i'm i'm all i'm all about uh nhl hockey and basketball and football where i would start a season and i would then control these you know, players and play a game and then amass the statistics. And the real draw is not just playing the game, but it's like, you know, can I score 70 goals in a season or, or whatever? Or can I get this? Can I figure out a way to pitch a, you know, a perfect game here or, or a no hitter and then have the lowest earned run average or, or whatever? There's something about, I, I enjoy the math side of, of sports and the, in the stats tracking piece a lot. Um, so I have another sports related question for you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Did you have you read Moneyball? I have not. But it, did you it, watch the movie? No, but it's on my list. Movie's really not good. Oh, really? It's okay. it's okay. I mean, it's not it's not great. I think you would enjoy the book though, hmm. um, because it's little about baseball and more about an individual who took a different like focus on statistics to employ building a team mm-hmm. right right and i love i love that idea that 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 is that that you could just simply like like reinvent the game by by simply like looking at it a different way i.e through the lens of statistics it, yeah it, it's it's um it's kind of it's very fascinating and, mm-hmm. and has been really what people base i think or many people base their fantasy sports world on is where can I find value in this player um, that the market is valuing other things, but I see something that's important as I as I build a team? And, and so this guy, Billy Bean, who um, is the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, said um, on-base percentage matters more 
than batting average and and batting average being amount of times that you have an at bat that you get a hit and on base percentage is the amount of times you're at bat and get on base because you can walk and so it was a different way like i mean it's one small statistical change but he built an entire i mean i'm simplifying it but built an entire system around valuing that on base percentage much more than something else and was able to keep um you know make the playoffs with uh a, a salary you know a team salary of uh, you know two thirds or sorry a third that of of the New York Yankees you know consistently beating them where the Yankees have always been the we're going to pay for players that have the traditional statistics yeah they're really interesting I mean for me it's it's kind of it's fascinating stuff yeah no and for me too and I just wish you know I wish I was better about reading books I never seem to have time to read books anymore I think I'm halfway through about three or four different books um, but but yeah it does it does definitely the idea of it appeals to me without a doubt yeah well there you go I'll uh, I, I think I got I've got Moneyball somewhere let me maybe I'll send it to you well, I'll just sit on my nice band and I won't read it <laughs> I should get it on the Kindle. Yeah, it's only eight uh, seventy three on Kindle. Well, there you go. Or, or I could, or I could, you know, for a while I was listening to audiobooks, um, which which is good. Um, but then I then I have podcasts, and so now podcasts kind of take precedent. And what I've, what I've discovered is when I'm in Brazil, <clears throat> I seriously fall behind on podcasts because I kind of get out of my normal habit. And speaking of exercise, got out of my normal walking exercise. I was walking some in Brazil, but again, your schedule changes up, and so. No, it's, just, it's hard to uh, it's hard to kind of get. I was sort of in, was in the process of grooving a new routine, uh, but then of course I came home and then it's I got to get back into my old routine of uh, you know taking the dog for a walk and walking walking at work and all that stuff. Yeah, well, that's you, know, you got to get back into your thing. Yeah, yeah. get back in, back out of the. You you were just living the Brazilian way of life. I was, I was. It was good. It was cool, 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 cool. Well, hey, should we? Uh... Should we talk about food safety stuff? We should. Do you have any other non-food safety stuff you want to talk about? Well, I just wanted to share um, just in terms of caffeine and, and beverages and, and meals. So we've we've had a, a, a calamitous event here in the food science department in that we used to have a cafe uh, called Dudley's. Uh, and because we we're located on Dudley Road, the, the, they had a naming contest and they came up with a very clever and I think reasonable name of Dudley's. Um, but they closed Dudley's recently because they opened up a new building next to us. Uh, it's the Institute for Food, Nutrition, and Health, um, which is a lovely new building, and we'll, we'll link to it in show notes. And in the Institute for Food, Nutrition, and Health, they have a healthy eating cafe, which is a beautiful uh, facility. Um, and so today, so so I had I had a I was had to give a, a lecture today for a, a um, quantity foods class, part of the dietetics program. I give them a lecture on food safety every day and the work that we do for Rutgers University Dining. And um, I, I felt like I needed some uh, caffeinated inspiration. And so today was the opening day for this healthy eating cafe. Who I'm forgetting what the name is. I think it might just be called uh, the healthy eating cafe. But um, the um, one of my graduate students very nicely agreed to um, uh, go and buy me a coffee at the Healthy Eating Cafe. Um, but because they only have healthy foods there, they had coffee, which apparently is a healthy food. It's a healthy um, food. Yeah. But they only had raw sugar. Okay. So cane, cane sugar. Yeah. No. no oh, and honey. So and honey. so no white sugar, no artificial sweeteners because those are unhealthy, Ben. Um, and they only had two percent milk or almond milk. So no cream because cream is not healthy. So 
Needless wow. to say, I had caffeine and anger. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then uh, I went back because I needed more caffeine. But you were healthy. <laughs> You're so, eating so, healthy. Oh, it gets worse. Um, and so I went back and I got uh, another smaller coffee right before the podcast. Also, well, this time, and I, it's like two, putting putting two percent milk in coffee. It might as well drink it black, right? So I so I didn't put any. And I guess I could learn to like almond milk, but I'm still not sure how to titrate the concentration of that correctly. So um, anyway, no almond milk, no two percent milk, and and a giant heaping teaspoonful of raw sugar to try to make this coffee taste halfway palatable. Oh, but then because Dudley's is closed and because I'd gotten very out of the habit of bringing a lunch, because see, I used to go able to walk down to Dudley's and I could get like, they always had a chili. They had soup and chili. Always had a chili choice. I like the turkey chili the best. You could get a whopping big uh, thing of turkey chili, like 300 calories uh, for like $3, right? And the turkey chili was the best, but they would have beef chili and then sometimes chili with chunks of meat. And they had a vegetarian chili, which was, was tolerable and it was pretty good. So, uh, but again, nice filling, good lunch for like two or three bucks. So today I went to the Healthy Eating Cafe to get lunch and I had a bowl of coleslaw, which was palatable. And then they have this soup thing that you can make soup from. You can, you can put, and they have like four different broths and then a bunch of stuff you could put in and including bean sprouts and various things. And so, um, I made like a miso based soup with uh, some edamame and some, I think it was chicken, cooked chicken, um, and maybe some, you know, uh, sliced onions or something like that. Uh, green onions. Um, you know what my lunch cost me? Uh, uh, a healthy, a healthy amount. Yes, ten dollars. Whoa! Yeah, ten dollars for that. So, and I, you know, I'm trying not to. I mean, it's and it's not the fault of <clears throat> the folks from Rutgers Dining because they're trying to make a, uh, you know, break even on a, an unsustainable plan to serve healthy food. But anyway, so yeah, so coffee and anger. Coffee and anger. There you go. Coffee. That's a that's a good show title. Mm-hmm. Coffee and anger. Um, oh, and then and then and then uh, I did. They did still leave the vending machines in food science, so at least we have that, right? And so I bought a uh, a water, an Aquafina water, because we're a Pepsi campus now, apparently. Um, and uh, so Aquafina water, which I bought with my watch. What Apple Pay? Apple Pay. Yep. I've never used Apple Pay. Oh, it's it's pretty cool. I used it for the first time at the mall. Uh, we have a there's a, a Euro place. At the mall, uh, run by I think a Turkish guy, and uh, he had a sign up saying we take Apple Pay now. And I'm like, hey, can I pay without Pay? He's like, oh yeah, that'd be cool. I think I was his first Apple Pay customer, so it's, it was pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, I uh, I'm, yeah. So I mean, I have the the Apple Pay capability. I've just never uh, haven't hooked it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we one of our grocery stores that we uh, frequent one of the one of the many uh, Lowe's Foods uh, has Apple Pay. But I've just I've never I've never used it. Yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to, um, <clears throat> but it does it does work uh, pretty well once you kind of figure it out. And, and then you have to also it's like you have to you have to look for like there's a certain logo, and if they, either if they say Apple Pay or if they they show you the this logo, um, you know you can pay with that. And so the the vending machine, it's like okay, it has that little uh, sideways Wi-Fi logo. It's like okay, I know I can pay with Apple Pay with this. So yeah, cool, very cool. cool. Cool, cool, cool. Hey, um, so there's stuff going on that we got to talk about. 
There's like there's like food safety things. Oh, not it's not all about coffee, anger, and healthy food. <laughs> no, it is. It is. It's all oh, about. Cool. It's, that's a different podcast though. That's the uh, coffee, anger, healthy food, uh, Apple Pay co- podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> we should hey, start another podcast. We should. We should. <laughs> you know, all the people that tune in for food safety news would really like if we had another podcast where we just put all the other stuff. <laughs> what you know? What what would be hilarious is if we did another podcast. We would just start with the food safety thing. I guess, <laughs> and and then get to the to the other stuff at the end. Perfect. Ah yeah, well. Um, okay, so so we haven't talked about things for a while, but mm. we've got we got a pretty crazy size recall or uh, outbreak going on. Really? Yeah. Well, Tell I me mean, about it. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you all about it uh, from our friends at the uh, Cucumber Growers Association. Oh, yeah. No, um, yeah, have five, almost 600 people. Wow. 33 states, three deaths, 12, 112 hospitalizations, Salmon a Puna. In, wow. Uh, in Garden Coop. It's crazy. Like, it's, it's, this is large. So let me, let me tell you the types of questions I've been receiving on this. And mm-hmm. I want to, um, I want to talk through it with you a little bit. Sure. So, and I, I have some, the- I got some theories. Right. I bet. And we've seen a couple other cucumber-related outbreaks in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I bet that this, when we look at multi-state produce outbreaks now, we're going to see them in this level. Like when it makes our uh, level of uh, of, of uh, you know number of cases, uh, number of incidents. I I think when it hits our radar, our we're just our radars are more finely tuned. Like like so say. Ten years ago, when we had 200 cases that were that were identified and confirmed, maybe the outbreak was this large. Huh. But, right. And, so, in other words, the outbreaks are not getting bigger, but our radar, our, our lower limit of detection on the radar is getting uh, lower. So, yeah. So this is this is 558 cases, uh, but ten years ago, it maybe would have been 100 cases or yes. 50 cases. Yes, and I think more people are going to become confirmed. I think the resources that are going into state and local public health departments are helping us get better numbers on how many actual cases there are. Because, you know, we've got that under-reporting triangle, right? Right. Like people get sick and not everybody, blah, blah, blah. It goes all the way up to uh, confirm CDCs. I've used that that triangle in my slides for like mm-hmm. the last 15 yep. years. I, my, my, my hypothesis is that that triangle is getting smaller at the bottom end <laughs> right it yep. is not an isosceles triangle anymore mm-hmm. um be, because this like it, I, I don't know and i, I all i all, the the reason why i say that is um the this looks like the serrano pepper not tomato linked uh seminal st paul outbreak that we saw in 2008 it looks like the um, spinach linked E. coli 157H7 outbreak, like the same kind of time frame of exposure, mm-hmm. the same look to the epi curve, but just more cases. And I guess, I mean, there are other ways to explain this. Maybe it's just a more con- you know, widespread contamination, uh, you know, uh, but, but the more like, I, I don't know, if, if we look back and this is just me guessing, not doing any rudimentary comparisons, but I feel like our multi-state outbreaks are getting we're getting more cases. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, I, I, you know, I, I think you're probably right. Well, there you go. I guess I'm, I'm done. I'm done for the day. It's all, it's all I got. Um, so anyway, that's one, one of the questions that keeps coming up and I'm sure you get it all the time is it, it, almost one of the 
foundational questions in any um, interview is, are we seeing more illnesses? Is food safer or less safe than it, than it was um, in, you know, in the past? And, and you know, the standard answer that I think um, we all give is, no, we're getting better at finding things. And I guess I, I'm retooling that to not only are we getting better at finding things, but we're getting more data points that go into, the, you know, in, into these outbreaks. And I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm just this. I'm going from field on. Yeah, no, and I I would say I agree, and I get asked that same question, and I give that same answer. But really, you know, how do you? Let's look at it from a scientific perspective. How would you even test that, right? So, of course, we can look at the CDC underreporting underreporting factors, and we could look at how those are changing. And, and I, you know, you can take the last two, like the last two times that CDC gave us those numbers, and we could look at how they're changing. But even if you kind of look at how the CDC f- defines those numbers, it's a little bit hinky how they do it, right? Yeah. It's, they, it's so we really don't. I mean, we really don't have. Uh, a good way or we don't not that we don't have a good way but we really historically have not had a way that we kind of do that so uh, th- that would be a i think a pretty interesting uh, that's an interesting data need like right to to be able to figure out how accurate our underreporting is because even the if you the thing that you point to as the standard for how we do it which is CDC is really it, it's not that satisfactory i guess is probably the best way i would describe it right and uh, the um, the other thing I'd add into this is if we look at the epi curve for this, and there is a the first time we looked at it, and I'll, I'll we'll link to this in show notes there because CDC is doing such a great job at leaving stuff on their website, <laughs> right? Like they have illnesses, and and we have an epi curve from um, September fifth, and then we have another one from uh, September twenty second, just uh, just yesterday. And there are more illness. So it's not, there are more illnesses in history that are making it into this epi curve as we go on. Just like, and I mean in history, like it's not everything was added after September 5th. Like there were new cases after September 5th and September 5th is when, when the, the recall happened. So we had cases and it looks like it's dropped right off. You know, there hasn't been a, um, a case reported since September 11th, but in the um, time frame from August uh, uh, 12th through to September 5th, we see cases being added in this September 22nd cor- curve. Right. And, we, yeah, and so we'll, we'll link to this page. But, I, yeah, I have to say this is like – so the natural inclination is, okay, we have an epi curve and we have new information. We will update it. And we'll just take the old curve down because that's no longer current, right? Well, but, but the fact that they've left all of these curves up with the the recall date superimposed, and then their 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 you know their window that says illnesses that began during this time period may not be reported, and the fact that they're updating all of this is absolutely fantastic because it gives us and you could, if you worked at it, you could go back through uh, you know uh, um, uh, the, the 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 services that archive the web, uh, the Wayback Machine, for example, and you could go back and you could pull up the old data that they've taken down because all that's archived somewhere. But the fact that they've just left it up there for us is is fantastic. That's ex- and that's exactly what they, in my opinion, they should be doing. It doesn't cost them that much in terms of keeping that stuff up on their servers, and it provides a fantastic perspective for us to look at this and to see how things evolve. 
Yeah, and they're like super open with it by saying explicitly on these curves, illnesses that began during this time, and they've got this wide range. I'm looking at the September 22nd one. It goes all the way back to um, August 28th. If if there was an illness that happened on you know, that began on August twenty eighth, it still might not be counted yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so just like from a all the stuff that we talk about on this podcast from a communication standpoint of talking about uncertainty, they they visually ca- capture it right here by saying that like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we just don't know. This is what it looks like today. We could get stuff that that pops up, um, you know, in the past. And in fact, if you look at this, you know, if you're looking at these two curves, I um, go back to um, September, or sorry, July, I don't know, it looks like the 15th. So on our first curve from September 5th, the July 15th, there was one illness. Go back, go to the September 22nd, there are two illnesses now that were in July. On July 15th. Like, so it's getting added back in history because the reporting process takes time to go through. And, and it just, so anyway, I guess what I'm, what I'm really saying is CDC is getting much better at connecting the dots back through time, adding cases that are confirmed where we're back in 2006. We knew that there were 200 people ill, four or five deaths, whatever it was. And that was kind of it. There wasn't, let's go use whole genome sequencing and go back in time and, and find more pieces to this puzzle to find out what the real burden of this outbreak was. And that, that, so that, this, this is like, I know it's like a little thing, but it's really kind of fascinating. And that's my, you know, that's why I think we're going to see this, you know, 500, 600 cases in outbreak, which is, which would have been massive a long time ago. I think it's just becoming, just becomes the norm. In these produce-related ones, like these, it's different in some of the other cases, but um, the, this is what these outbreaks seem to look like to me. Not being uh, an epidemiologist as well. Yeah, no, and it's and yeah, and again, you know, uh, the one of the episodes I was just recently re-listening to, um, you were going on and on about how wonderful the CDC is, and 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 I have to say, they're 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 absolutely doing a bang up job here, and those epi curves are are just fantastic, and and, and well well worth anybody uh, looking at to get again to try to get a perspective on like the next time this happens, and the next time that we're that we're in a place like that like the graph for September eighth, remember that you know in a few weeks. It's going to be like the graph for uh, September 22nd, and so exactly. so you know just just you know, use that information to project forward because that's the the best uh, example of what we have of how these things are going to evolve. Yeah. So here's the here's the other thing I want to talk about cucumbers. Mm-hmm. Um, we we know uh, the epidemiologically we've uh, we haven't you and I don't do this stuff, but but someone has connected um, the the outbreak to um, a, a product that was um, sold by someone called Custom Produce Sales, and they recalled all their cucumbers, and they uh, had it under the Fat Boy label. Um, and these were uh, cucumbers. You know, I'm just reading from the um, from the outbreak report here. Unlabeled cucumbers packed in a black reusable plastic containers um, was were also in, involved. So we've got. This you know one individual company, custom produce sales that uh, and, and that 
uh, th- they then sent it to someone called Andrew Williamson Fresh Produce. And then they were in, you know, Andrew Re- Williamson Fresh Produce recalled some stuff. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on, on and on about where, where these cucumbers, uh, come from and where they go. What we, what we don't have and what, what I'm waiting with bated breath, not to, to, you know, dr- over dramatize this is what, where did it, where did it come from on on the farm or in the packing facility? We're we're too far. We're not we're not there yet. I mean, it's really just a couple of weeks, and we know from our Jensen Farms uh, outbreak, the FDA investigation um, was you know didn't happen, wasn't revealed for for a couple of months afterwards, where we got to see the the full investigation. But this is really so. In our let's learn about what happened. Let's learn from outbreaks. We've got one piece here of here's the scope and magnitude, and, and gosh, I hope the the epi curve is 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 over, right? Like that we're at, at the end of it. But th- you know, thinking about those investigation reports, how much stuff we've learned and then changed or tried to implement different things, use it as extension material. I mean, the that's the. That's the silver lining in these outbreaks or these these reports, and so I'm you know I'm I'm always I'm I'm always waiting you know patiently for for what's what's in that stuff to see if there's anything different or if it was or if it's something new uh, or or something old what you know whatever it is and you know not to not to ramble too much but but we can't like we can't forget that there's going to be some sort of a report we're going to be able to see. Uh, at least the investigators that are there long after the the contamination time, what might have led led to this? And yeah, and and good. and whatever was going on, if you look at if you think about the shelf life of cucumbers, and you, then you look at the epi curves, like whatever was going on, it was going on for a pretty long while, right? This was not a single. Uh, batch or a single, f- I don't think it was a single field of cucumbers that got contaminated, right? This was, right. this thing was going on. So we started to see cases back, uh, like July 4th and then, and then through, through July, ramping up through August and then into September. And that is a long time. So whatever was going on was going on for a long time. Right, right. And we don't know the directionally where, where it came from. We do know. Uh, from some reports that were in the Packer that the Andrew and Williamson um, uh, place that recalled their product first, not and then the Fat Boy uh, uh, came afterwards. Mm-hmm. No, I'm totally messing this up. They Andrew and Williamson was first September 4th, and yep. then um, Custom Produce on September uh, 11th. Yep. Um, but there were some environmental swabs taken at the facility, the Andrew and Williamson facility, and they they were positive for Salmonella Puna. Right. So, but how does it get there? Right. Right. Like, well, and did it? Was it caused by uh, uh, Andrew and Williamson fresh produce? Right. Or did this come from wherever the cucumbers? Because they because they're a uh, uh, just a, a holding company, or they're they're just a, a, a way station, right? So originally these cucumbers came from somewhere else, right? Right, right, yeah, and there. So there's a packing facility. There's a, you know, maybe a, a, you know, a larger. Who knows? Who knows what the whole um, breakdown looks like from, you know, from my my experience in, in, in fresh produce. You've got, you know, might have been handled by, you know, a couple of different spots. It might have been harvested and then goes to the, you know, the farm, um, 
uh, you know, shed and then in large containers it ends up being shipped to a pack facility and then it goes down a line. And, and we don't know from what's, you know, what's there, what, you know, what we've seen here, where in those environmental swab tests did they find the Salmonella puna? And what we also don't know is if it's sort of confirmed that, you know, maybe there's, it, it looks like, you know, Salmonella puna, um, but maybe it's not even the outbreak strain. Maybe it's, you know, well, there's a whole bunch of different um, unknowns here. And, and that's what happens in early, you know, early on. I think people are always looking for these, these answers, and we just don't know yet. But we better all pay attention for, for a while until we, we do know more, more about it and the, and the report comes out on what kind of factors they see or the investigators see. I, in another life, Don, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have been an investigator. Like I, I like – I mean I like what we do. Mm-hmm. But I also like the idea of let's go and look at this. Let's go see if we can find where the salmonella came from. Like, and I know we kind of do that, but we really don't like, I mean, I mean I'm not going to Baja, California, Mexico mm-hmm. to, to do that. And I don't know. I, 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 for those who listen to the podcast that do that kind of stuff, I think you have an exciting job. Yeah. And, 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 and on the one hand, it's very exciting. On the other hand, it could be very disruptive because all of a sudden, guess what? You're, you know, you, right. it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're going to, uh, you know, to this produce farm in Mexico or, or wherever, uh, or you're going to this packing house in, uh, Nevada or this, 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 this other packing house. It doesn't say where. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, and yeah, and we still, do, we, and I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a wonderful, uh, CDC publication with the traceback investigation for, uh, uh, salmonella and tomatoes. Uh, from from a big recall a few years back, uh, or or no, maybe it was the the peppers, peppers right? Yeah, and yeah. and it and it's just it's a it's a spider web, right? But yeah. but eventually you sort of figure it out, and 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 most of the time maybe you don't. But yeah, trying trying to to trying to do this traceback. So we what we do know is that custom produce sales was involved, and we know that Andrew and Williamson Fresh Produce was involved. What we don't know is where, what's not in the information that we see here on the web is. Where did those cucumbers come from originally? Maybe it just was an event that happened at Andrew and Williamson. Maybe the source was some uh, sanitation defect at Andrew and Williamson. Or maybe it was from whatever happened in Mexico. We, we just don't know, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're totally like we, we don't know enough about it. And, and, and you know, we, we've talk, we had Bill, Bill Marler on the podcast a while ago uh, talking about his, his experiences. And, and the the legal world helps find some of that information because you know some of it uh, comes out in um, and I don't know the discovery process or, or whatever, right. and then some of it comes out in, in these reports, and it all leads to I mean this is this kind of stuff is why and how we should build interventions and i don't mean to sound like dumb about it but that's like this is the starting point when something bad happens we do kind of have to figure out why this happened and how it how it happened and then change something about it yeah well and speaking of changing stuff uh, i do want to point out once again and you know i have friends at new jersey department of health but i want to point out that uh some of these recalled cucumbers were distributed to new jersey Okay, so we definitely got some of the cucumbers involved. But if you look at the uh, case count maps by state, you'll see that New Jersey is uh, colored white, which means no reported cases. And so you have to ask, I have to ask the question, is that because public health 
uh, our food safety, public health in New Jersey is crap, or is it because we really have no cases? And yeah, right, right. I would venture to say it's uh, the the former rather than the latter. <laughs> it, it may be. Um, so um, to jump into our risk communication world on this, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew and Williamson um, had a statement. I'm just looking at their their website on September 10th um, that, you know, talks, just talks a little bit about this. Um, our thoughts go out to the victims, their families, and their loved ones. We want to let those who are affected know we are fully cooperating with health officials to ensure we are doing everything possible to learn if we are responsible and how this could have happened. As soon as we received information from health officials, our product might be the source of this outbreak. We took immediate action to cease harvesting and packing operations. Uh, at this facility and recall product from the market, currently conducting a thorough inval- uh, evaluation of our cucumber farming and packing operations to determine if we can find the root cause of how this might have happened. We're looking at all control processes and completely scrubbing and cleaning the facility. Good. Okay. Um, and so that, you know, that, that's the, the meat of it. Um, good, good kind of standard stuff. Glad, glad to see that we've got this you know, apology of we are getting, we're, we're working on it. We're getting to the bottom of it. And I want to fast forward and, and connect this a little bit to Bluebell hmm. because, you know, the, the Bluebell process uh, for the communication uh, around their Listeria outbreak, a much smaller uh, um, outbreak um, uh, case wise, you know, 10, 10 cases, three deaths, you know, so uh, still very, uh, uh, you know, uh, tragic. Um, but it, at, in the months that have, we, we've been talking about, I think we mentioned blue ball on, on each of the last like five podcasts when we haven't had a guest mm-hmm. or, or, or more. And as we, as we talk about it, um, you know, there's uh, uh, some information at the start and then, yeah, we're going to get better at food safety. But one of the criticisms that I've, I've had all along and, and I place it sort of on, on this, uh, Andrew and Williamson as, as well as, okay, great. We have, this, this is part of it on, we're sorry, we're going to get to the bottom of it. What, what that last piece of what does that mean? And what is it that we're actually going to do? And, and once we do find, if we ever find, um, what, what the, you know, the root cause was that give us all the specifics about what we're going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. Not just we're going to like, you know, and completely clean and scrub the facility. That That's great. What other things, how do we change our food safety management plans? How do we, are we going to do more environmental sampling? What, you know, what are we going to do with our suppliers? And I, and I realize that it's not all this stuff shouldn't go in this press release, but that's the real stuff that I, that I think, you know, you and I, the reporters who are looking at this stuff, that, that they really want to want to know, and and then the cons- the concerned consumers that are really kind of into this, that they want to be able to see on you know on a, on a website. And we we talked about this as it related to um, uh, chicken stuff a couple of years ago. Who was was the uh, Foster Farms, mm-hmm. and, and that you know they had a, a you know a ten point plan that only had you know nine points or whatever it was that we we calculated out on that but there still isn't a lot of substance to what specifically people are going to do and and that is 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's uh, it, it's disappointing, and I don't, I'm not calling out Andrew and Williamson yet. I, I'm sort of saying that's what I would expect those next steps to be once these reports come out. On okay, great, we read this report. We've worked with FDA or whomever it is, um, our the health officials, and here here's what we here's the here are the specifics of what we're doing now. You know, and as as you were talking and I was clicking around on some links, so I'm a little confused, okay, because on the CDC website, it says the headline is um, multi-state outbreak of salmonella puna infections linked to imported cucumbers, right? To me, that says they were produced outside the United States. Right. But if you look, if you go to the Andrew Williamson homepage and you click on the the first announcement from September 4th, which is annoyingly only in a pop-up window, it says um, limited edition cucumbers were produced in Baja, California. Now, last time I checked, that's inside the United States. So, no. Baja, California, I think, and this might be a geography, Baja, California is a part of Mexico. (laughs) Is that in Canada? I'm confused. It is. It is a state. No. Oh. It's in, yes. It's a. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it sure is. is. I, all right. Okay. So I. You know, this is geography. <laughs> this, so Americans, uh, North Americans, specifically those of us from the United States, we are notoriously bad at Canadian geography. And Turns out we are bad at Mexican geography too. <laughs> it is um, the. It is the free and sovereign, <laughs> free, sovereign free, state. Baja, free and California. sovereign state of Baja California. All right. State in Mexico. I, I yeah. and I, uh, uh, full disclosure, I only knew that because I also <laughs> did the same thing about a week and a half ago trying to figure out where this was. Awesome. And then I was like, oh, it's, it's actually in Mexico. It's right across. That's where uh, Tijuana is. Yeah. It's right uh, right where, you know, I'm, I've been there. Lar- yeah. Actually, T- no, Tijuana is the largest city in uh, the uh, sovereign, free and sovereign state of Baja California. I, I have not been to Tijuana. I've seen it from, uh, from uh, San Diego. Like, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, I've. There were a bunch of people went last time uh, IAFP was in San Diego. There were a bunch of people that went to Baja or went to uh, Tijuana. Thanks. I'll. Um, I'm not interested. Yeah, I've heard enough. Yeah, exactly. Not exactly. Interested. Not my. Not my cup of tea, as they say. Not your cup of Baja. <laughs> uh, so, so it is imported. But Andrew Williamson, though, is a U.S. Yes. company, yes. and they, it was there at their packing facilities in Baja, California, Mexico. Right. Right. And, and still, what, I, what I would have said is, uh, you know, produced in Baja, California, comma, Mexico. Right, right. Just, to, just for, you know, idiots like me. Oh, hey, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you, you going to do? <laughs> I don't know what that means. So, <laughs> so all, I mean, all this stuff to me boils down to the philosophical problem I have with people who keep saying food safety is not competitive because I think this is, and I've, Share this with a couple. I know you've done a uh, – I don't know if you've done an interview or not, but there are a few people at some major news magazines and major networks that are um, doing some some background work on a couple of uh, pieces related to um, to Bluebell. And no, I I, I I was in Brazil, so I referred right. all of them to you. To me. Yeah, that's right. I knew you were on something. And then I referred someone to you. Uh, to do some testing in your in your laboratory or show <laughs> show something anyway, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, I the the concept of food safety is not competitive seems to fall apart when you start asking for okay, tell us exactly what you're doing, right? Then it becomes proprietary. Mm-hmm. That bothers me, and then, <laughs> that's I think that's where 
the bluebell discussion's gone. I think that's where we saw Foster Farms, and I and I'm not just talking about things like show us your test results, which Doug's been really really uh, hot on 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 Barf Blog. But if you're cleaning and sanitizing, you're doing stuff. Tell us everything about what you're doing, and if if you really are, we you know if this really is not competitive, and and I guess this is just like the soapbox that I'm on right now because I think it really is competitive and it's okay if it's competitive, but don't hide behind food safety is not a competitive thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know, Don. That's yeah. Cool. You know, it, it definitely, it, it, it definitely, it's, it's like sort of talking out of both sides of your mouth, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and so if it's not competitive, then how come I couldn't call food company X up in any of the sectors, retail all the way back to primary production and say, can you show me all of your food safety plans? Because I'd like to learn from them and implement them at my company. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Be like, no way. Yep. Um, so, so there you go. Um, what, uh, what, 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 uh, what, what else is uh, going on with you? Well, What's going on in the food safety world? Although I was um, in Brazil and I was not talking to reporters, um, I did get some questions about hand washing and antibacterial soap. So, um, and so this was, um, uh, so a, a study was recently published, um, on antibacterial soap and let me, give me, give me a minute to, are you, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm totally familiar with So that. can you, can you set it up while I, I search for some emails? Uh, sure. So, um, the <laughs> I can definitely, uh, <laughs> so not, I should have, I should have, let me, let me give, let me give so, the background and then, and then, and then, and then you can give the setup and then I'll talk. Okay, so the background is that some, some Korean, and I could do, well, actually I can do a lot of this from memory. So, um, uh, some Korean researchers recently published a paper that basically proved that uh, antibacterial soap was no different than uh, regular soap at removing bacteria from hands. And so uh, I was asked to, to comment on this because apparently, although I am, I'm not an expert on uh, cucumbers because nobody called me about that, um, I am and actually we're working on – I've got a graduate student working on some cucumbers right now. Actually, she's, she's Korean. So well, that's a weird uh, cucumber hand-washing Korean connection there. But um, so she um, uh, is doing some research on salmonella and cucumbers, which is very fortuitous. But these researchers published, unrelated researchers published a paper showing that antibacterial soap is no different than uh, plain soap. And uh, because I'm I'm an expert in hand-washing, apparently I was asked to comment. And so... um, you know, and I, I have to share, I did not share this with any of the reporters, but so just between you and me, Ben, um, I will share with you that I was actually a peer reviewer on this work. Ah. And I raised some of these same concerns during the peer review process. Um, and one of the, one of the, problems with the work is that what these researchers did, which seems like a very good thing, is they took bland soap and they added the maximum amount of triclosan allowed by law into these same soap formulations. And then they compared them and they discovered that there was no difference. And so one of the one of the questions that the reporter asked me is, well, is this the definitive study that proves once and for all that antibacterial soaps don't matter? And my answer is, of course, no. And in fact, according to a meta-analysis that we did and according to data that we have analyzed and that we have used in our deliberations, in fact, antibacterial soaps do offer 
a an advantage. And actually, I was thinking about this earlier in the podcast when you were talking about Moneyball, because the whole principle behind Moneyball is you can go for these like small statistical differences that in the end end up with a winning baseball team, right? right well, right. same thing applies to antimicrobial soaps. Yes, the, the difference between a, a, an antimicrobial soap or antibacterial soap and a non-AB soap is small, but guess what? Magnified over repeated uses ends up having a significant difference. Um, so, so that's one thing is that if you, if you look at the literature, yes, any individual study might or might not show a difference, but overwhelmingly over the course of all the studies, yes, there is a difference. Um, but the other thing, and I think this is really kind of the the, 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 the smoking gun or the, the coup de grace that, that is the flaw in this study is that you simply cannot add in antibacterial compounds to regular – to a formulation of soap and expect it to work in the same way. And that is and – and, and the chemistry behind this is a little bit beyond me, but there's a wonderful article uh, by Taylor and others that I will – that we will point people to to look at, um, which basically says, guess what? The nature of triclosan in particular, which is the compound that the Koreans used and the compound that is investigated by, by Taylor et al., the nature of triclosan is that the matrix, the chemistry around it impacts it. And so you, you can't just simply add the, the, the compound in. And, and this gets to kind of food safety is not proprietary. One of the things that is proprietary in the soap business is these formulation tricks. And so a lot of the knowledge about how to adequately formulate antibacterial soaps is proprietary knowledge. Now, I can point to this one study by Taylor, and I can say, okay, yes, if you want to understand the science, here's a, a study that investigated it. But, but there's a whole field, a whole proprietary field that is held confidentially within these companies because it is, you know, it is their business, right? And, and apparently food safety may be uh, non-competitive, but, but antibacterial soaps are competitive, competitive right? Competitive, yeah. um, and, and so the the so so it matters, right? The formulation matters, and that and that is a, a something that is not represented in the literature. It is something that is something that people who who formulate soaps for a living understand. And the problem is, Ben, it's really easy for anybody to go out there and apparently do this kind of research without talking to a soap company. And one of the things that I've been very f- blessed. To, to do in, in my work is that I've worked with people that work in these companies and, and they've educated me on these issues. Of course, that makes me a, a, an industry shill because I've taken industry money and, and immediately uh, taints any, any conclusions I would come to. But at the, on the other hand, how else are you going to gain that knowledge, right? So anyway, so that I think I, I did that all without um, – actually finding any any email or anything but but that's that's the foundation of of this 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 current issue with antibacterial soaps and i really thought it was going to kind of blow up because doug sent me something about it and then i i got something from uh chemistry world magazine a reporter who had an urgent deadline and then uh, my, my friends at the american cleaning institute which used to be the soap and detergent association they reached out to me because they're writing a press release and so uh, you know i had a, a fairly narrow window of time you know towards the end of my brazil trip where i was was doing a lot of you know quick scrambling about a day or, or two days where I was doing some quick scrambling to to write stuff about about hand washing or put together stuff on hand washing. So so anyway, that's my that's the current uh, situation with regard to antibacterial soaps and uh, and the literature. So I have a question for you on this, and um, you bring well, as you were talking about it, I was thinking about um, 
something that Malcolm Gladwell, because we haven't <laughs> talked about him for a while, has done. Turns out. Yeah, it turns about. Um, talked about in a book of his that I read a while ago called uh, Underdogs. No, it's not, it's not what it's called. David and Goliath. Mm. He talks, the entire book is based around this concept of the inverted U-curve. Do you know about the inverted U-curve? Uh, tell me about it. All right. So, and I'm reading this quote directly from the book. Inverted, U, inverted U-curves have three parts. Each part follows a different logic. There's the left side where doing more or having more makes things better. There's the flat middle where doing more doesn't make much of a difference. And then there's the right side where doing more or having more makes things worse. So, uh, I, I, you know, maybe what you're dis- – like maybe something else that's at work here um, is that – and again, I'm totally guessing and I don't know if there's any science to, to back this up. But the a- adding the maximum, you know, allowable limit of triclosan isn't really the most effective way to kill pathogens anyway. Like maybe that with the soap making, maybe that's too much. Um, And, you know, where too little obviously isn't going to have any effect, but having too much is also going to change the attributes of that soap somehow. And and just adding it on top obviously is not the way that, that it's done, but it's, but it could be have, you know, much less effect against uh, pathogens the more you add similar to what, what happens with chlorine, uh, and again, totally different chemistry, but by adding more chlorine into a water system, you change the pH, and that makes it less likely to, to kill pathogens. You know, what, know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I do. And and I can never, ever um, hear anything about Malcolm Gladwell um, without thinking about about Merlin Mann, um, who, who and I just have – so we'll, we'll link to David and Goliath uh, in, in and maybe somebody will buy uh, uh, that book in iTunes. But we will also link to um, uh, a, a blog post from Kung Fu Grip uh, titled The Cringing Point. And, and so um, – and I will read to you just a little bit of this wonderful uh, uh, blog post, which everybody should should definitely read, um, and and I'll I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just read one particularly good paragraph. Uh, this is Merlin talking about Malcolm. Um, I guess I wish Gladwell were more of an old fashioned, albeit, albeit lower status, columnist rather than an armchair everythingologist and professional capitals serious capitals issues pundit. Sometimes it feels when he's reading the same Wikipedia and Google scart. Sometimes it feels like he's reading the same Wikipedia and Google Scholar articles we are, but has simply found a more effective persona for making reading things seem like peer-reviewed scholarship. <laughs> yes. Put differently, I bet he and I would differ wildly on which of his most contributions, let alone paragraphs, will be remembered as the most effective, long-lived, and useful. For myself, I most enjoy the paragraphs where he helps me see well, not the ones where he announced surprising half-facts about my, how my effing eye works. <laughs> so um, read the full version on Kung Fu Gripe. So anyway... Um, so yeah, it's just anyway. So I can I can never I can never think about Malcolm Gladwell ever again without hearing Merlin's voice in my head. <laughs> well, that's that's good. He uh, I, I like um, I like that Malcolm Gladwell has figured out a way to tell stories. <laughs> that's it. Yes, that's, that that's he's very good at at telling entertaining stories. Similar to uh, uh, Michael Lewis, who wrote the wrote, wrote Moneyball. The, they're just they're just good story people. It may not be true. Yes. They may be missing some of the narrative, but it's a good story. Yes. 
Yes, uh, anyway, so the yeah the the antibacterial stuff. Why why is everyone? I don't know. Just so like why why is this uh, antibacterial soap um, issue so polarizing? Like like I mean the the fact that you got asked this question of is this the definitive study, right? Like the like the, that we are constantly reaching this. Uh, antibacterial soap is is good, and then like wash our hands of it. Oh no, pun intended. Oh, Ooh, nice, thank you. Um, or or uh, you know, st- stay away from it. Like it, it's it's just such a it's like GMOs. It's so like either you're for it or you're against it. There's no um, middle of it. And and I'm not saying I mean no, don't I'm I'm not in, in, uh, intimating that you are. Either of those things. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of them. I think that the writing on the wall is that for sure triclosan is going away, right? I mean right, yeah. the FDA uh, Center for Drug Evaluation and Research has basically decided that they are going to get rid of triclosan uh, as an ingredient in soap. And so we're, we're, we're done with that. And then so what that means, and this, this sort of I, I talked to the uh, Chemistry World reporter a little bit about this, but basically what that means is that we are going to use compounds that are less well-studied and less uh, shown, you know, with, with more unknown environmental consequences and also um, more unknown efficacy, right? So we're pushing we're pushing down into more experimental compounds, which might be a good thing, might might be a bad thing, but anyway, it's a thing, and that's what's going to happen. So, but why is it so? Well, you know, I think it comes back to uh, earlier in the podcast when all of you people that were were uh, angrily shouting into your podcast uh, headphones, why won't they talk about food safety? Think back to my comments about the uh, uh, coffee and anger, right? Uh, I could not get a chemical to put in my coffee that was not uh, a, a, a brown cover, colored sugar with some contaminants in it. Why? Because that's the healthy kind, and I'm using Richard Fingers, that's the healthy kind of sugar. Certainly, we wouldn't want to use the kind of fake sweetener that's made, uh, that doesn't have any calories, that is, you know, that, that actually makes your coffee sweet without giving you calories, right? So it's, it's, a, it's where we are in the world. It's why people like uh, the uh, the food babe has a career. Um, it's why, but it's also, I mean, I, but again, it's it's there's and there's a bit of a backlash to that, and which is why people like the science babe, I think, also have, a, albeit a less successful career, but but who can who can you know have some uh, justifiable uh, traffic and attention by pointing out that what the food most of what the food babe says is utter nonsense. And again, you you only have to look at uh, any blog post that Doug has written about Chipotle and. And their their proud claims to be GMO free, uh, and and again, guess what? Chipotle just made some people sick from bacteria, and so again, Doug is all over that on on Barf Blog. So, you know, it's a nature of the world that we live in. We 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 want this idyllic world where everything is natural and everything is safe, except that those things are not synonymous, right? And it turns out that world is kind of a complicated place. Yeah, there's uh, it, it's like like you always say. Depends, and it's complicated. <laughs> my my graduate student used that. Uh, so my <laughs> graduate student Anne, who who will probably be uh, uh, writing the show notes for this, um, shared with me that she used that uh, when she had to go to a conference in California this week, uh, this past week, and 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 somebody asked her a question she didn't know. She said, "Well, let me let me tell you what my advisor always tells me. It depends, <laughs> and it's complicated. It's good. Yeah, I, good job, good job." Uh, hey, I just sent you a text. Uh, I see that. Speak, yeah, speaking of Chipotle, some you know 
weird kind of stuff happen about um, about this. And there's there's a you know a food safety bent to this. So you, you mentioned the um, you know Chipotle's you know move and announcement and public shaming of the GMO world and um, the you know the what they've sort of put out in the last uh, couple months on on their marketing. Um, and then you and I have talked about how carnitas are missing. Uh, totally, totally unrelated to this. Mm-hmm. But so, anyway, interesting thing. There's this group. Oh, um, I see. Yeah, called the Center for Consumer Freedom. Remember that name because it's. I did a little digging on the Center for Consumer. Nice, Freedom. nice. Yeah. Um, that uh, um, has gone like well after Chipotle, saying you guys are hypocritical. You call yourself healthy. Yeah, this is why you're. You know, not doing antibiotic-free food and and no GE, except if you eat a serving at Chipotle, it's fifteen hundred, you know, thirteen hundred to fifteen hundred calorie calories, and it'll make you fat. So, Center for Consumer Freedom. Who are these folks? Go to the web, the Wikipedia. Site. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Oh, the Wikipedia site. Uh, for yeah. For oh, okay, Center. I went. To, I went to their website. Oh no, you won't get the full the full fun there. Nice. So actually, they're a little bit open and transparent. So it's this guy, Richard Berman, and again, I don't know. I haven't. I, I don't know how I've missed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's been this group's been covered on. 60 oh, minutes. so so yeah. So Richard Berman lobbies on behalf of fast food, meat, alcohol, and tobacco industries. I want to meet this guy. Yeah, yeah. He's created this group, and it's been around since 1995, and it was started by money from Philip Morris. And again, this is I'm reading from the Wikipedia pages, and as we know, just and Anne can Never repeat wrong. this. Wikipedia is never wrong, except when it is. Um, but I did a little more digging after this, but this is a nice, succinct place for it. So Philip Morris provided um, uh, this guy, uh, Berman, uh, $600,000 to start a company. Uh, not a company, a not-for-profit that would um, really, like, tea party it up, <laughs> where it basically protects consumers from anybody saying anything to consumers like this is bad. And it really started around, interestingly, fighting smoking, uh, anti-smoking in, um, in restaurants. So they've gotten really into a bunch of different things, nutrition labeling, pesticide use, um, you know, genetic engineering. Uh, they, they lobbied against mothers against drunk driving, I mean, a whole bunch of different. Wow. Yeah, they're they're all over the place. Anyway, I just thought it was you, you know. So you have this like um, this group that calls themselves you know the Center for Consumer Freedom. They're coming at it against Chipotle, but they're backed by some of Chipotle's competitors. Interesting, really interesting. And I mean, we know people who work for these companies. I'm sure it's not too insidious, but like the world, the world is a complicated place. <laughs> And yeah, it turns out you can't believe everything you read on the internet. No, and huh. you always have to, you know, look at where follow follow the money, as they say in in uh, Fletch lives. Yeah, well, and I, I had seen this this uh, I had not seen this brutal new attack ad, as they call it, but um, I had I had definitely uh, seen stories about calories in Chipotle food, and, and again, as we've talked about on the podcast, and as somebody who's been counting calories um, for you know the last uh, uh, year, um, I there's a my go to food at Chipotle is a barbacoa salad, um, which has got a, quite a reasonable number of calories, and I leave off. The the rice and beans, and I, I, you know, get get barbacoa, and I have, and it's and it's basically lettuce, and maybe a little bit of cheese, and if I've got the calories left, 
you know, uh, at the at the end of the day, I'll have uh, some chips and guac, which is very very filling and satisfying. But yeah, if you it turns out Ben, uh, calories matter. If you want to eat less, you have to eat fewer calories. And sometimes the foods that you buy in restaurants have a lot of calories. I didn't know if you knew that. Turns I, out, I've heard that. I've heard that uh, from from. Uh... <laughs> From people and from uh, from the calorie people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. so so anyway, um, yeah. Wikipedia uh, Center for uh, Consumer Freedom. Yeah, it, it just it, like not 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 anything. I just I enjoy this. Let me let me let me get this. You know, because this is often a politics uh, talk that we have you and I, because our politics differ so much. I think <laughs> um, I, I I'm always entertained by. Uh, politics season uh, in in the United States, or as it's known, all year, every year, and uh, you, Donald Trump's uh, very entertaining to me. And from a from like in, like a from a let's watch how things unfold. And that's not you know that's probably no way to run a country, but I do like the drama and entertainment. And, and this yeah, is the but same. you but you could go you could go back to Canada anytime anytime. <laughs> I, I'm stuck go. here. Yeah, you're stuck. Well, you could go to Canada. I could. Um, I could I, be. I don't, I don't know how that works. <laughs> Apparently, almost everybody in food safety from Canada comes here. It's true. Uh, sometimes they come here and then they go back, uh, but only the black ones, apparently. Whoa, yes. Just one. We know one guy who's done that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, so. <laughs> That's not racist. That's no, just no, me observing just... that Larry Goodridge uh, moved back to Canada. So. Right, right, right. And Larry, Larry's uh, not a listener, but we might have to make him one. Uh, <laughs> we'll invite him on. Uh, yeah. So, so Larry. So, yeah. So we've got. Uh, so we got some differences between the the the, con- the countries, but the entertainment value of what goes on is what what I'm all about. And then this is one where I just I'm fascinated that Chipotle put out this ad and that this group. That's you know a not for profit organization that's funded by the food industry goes back and, and attacks them and uh, and food safety is not competitive, Don. Uh huh. Appa- apparently, neither is uh, all all natural healthy eating. Yeah, I it's it is the, the it's it, this whole world that we're in is fascinating. Um, speaking of which, and I want to jump back to cucumbers again, and I you okay. and I just real quick, you and I. This is one thing that was on my list that we haven't talked about for a while. We've talked about auditors a bunch, mm. and you know, maybe not surprisingly, maybe it is surprising. Um, Andrew and William Andrew and Williamson uh, is lists uh, Primus GFS as a GFSI benchmark. Their certification, they have it. Mm-hmm. So so. One of the things here, and this is the, you know, food safety is not competitive, you know, follow the money, all that kind of stuff. I want to know how this report compares, you know, this report that I'm, that we're promised that I'm waiting with bated breath about where contamination might have come from, how that compares to what the Primus GFS um, uh, audit said. And, and what, and, and again, not to, like, I don't know, not to hammer that world, you know, any more than, than we, than we do kind of a lot, but just like, how do we learn from it? If we're going to have auditing, which we, we are, and if folks like Darden, you know, we have friends who, who work in, uh, in that company who they were, uh, one of the buyers of, of this product and some of the illnesses, uh, were linked to cucumbers mm. that were sold in, in red lobsters, mm. um, 
and, and you know that they don't have the resources, I guess, from a, a, a human standpoint, to send somebody from Dardano to every farm that that they might get you know food from prior to and look for things and do food safety. So they so we've built this system of someone else will go out as a third party and we'll check and we'll hold them to standards and all that kind of stuff. How do we fix the audit system if we keep coming back with these outbreaks have been linked to places that are doing really well in their audits? And if I'm a buyer like Darden, like you know, a retailer, how, I, I, am I you know losing my confidence in the in the system that that I've that that I've been part of building? And how do I fix it? You know that that's the part that you know is very uh, is of interest on on the research side of things for me, but from a more holistic public health standpoint, how do we, how do we fix that? How do we make these audits better? How do we make these checks better? Or maybe this is something and I'm, you know, we're jumping the gun on this, but maybe, maybe it's something that, that wasn't, that wouldn't be picked up that has nothing to do with, with a good audit or a bad audit. But, but there's been enough problems with these uh, connections in the past that, that that's, you know, uh, not immediately, but very close to immediately is where my mind goes. Well, yeah, and I, I know that there is probably a, a paper somewhere that you were a co-author of that yeah. talks about what's wrong with auditing, right? And, we, and we'll we'll link to that in in, in show notes. But um, but I don't know, Ben. I mean, I think one of the things we need to do is to find out. Okay, so what what were the results of the last audit, and then how does that compare to an FDA inspection? And then let's. Gosh, if I was an auditing company, I would be I would be really looking at that and figuring out how to how to fix that, right? Because that's that's a serious problem. And and again, I think I was talking to a reporter recently. I think it was a reporter, but he was saying to somebody recently, and, and I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, is that um, right before any outbreak, there has been an audit. Why? Because companies are being audited constantly all the time right, right, right all yeah. the time and so there will always have been an audit right before an outbreak and almost everybody passes almost every audit and so there will almost always be a successful good audit right before every outbreak and th- that ought to be a lot of data to help people that are in the auditing business try to fix that huh. there's so wh- oh man wouldn't that be something to look at the data that's in those audits like all of them you know, yeah. To, oh, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. Audited inspections are never enough. A critique is that? That's you, that's right? It. That's the one. That's the <laughs> look one. at that. There you go. But uh, so you know what we argue in that in that review is that there the the practice of auditing on its own doesn't matter unless you do something about it. Right. Right. And and so the it's hard to point fingers at the. At the retailers who – or, or the – I shouldn't just say the retailers. The retailers, the buying, the institutions, the groups that buy on behalf of restaurants that, that use those auditing systems because um, if it doesn't get flagged in the audit, then there's not a whole lot to do about it, right? Like if it comes back, everything is great, then then everything everything seems good and the product goes into market and, and everybody's happy. But if, if there are – certain indicators. And I, I come back to this, that Petran paper from a long time ago that we talk about a bunch on inspections that sort of shows here are things that we see associated with outbreak um, uh, restaurants. And it's a, you know, it's a restaurant thing. But if there are certain indicators that you would see in an, out, in a, in an audit that matter more than others when it comes to those who, you know, uh, firms that have been linked to outbreaks, then if I'm 
the buyer, I probably want to look for those as opposed to just what the score is or that they had a superior rating. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would agree. I would agree. And, you know, and actually talking about restaurant data, I'm, I mentioned, um, that, uh, well, we, we recently had a paper published on, on cooling and, uh, based on CDC SNET data. And so I've been working with Laura Brown on kind of the next version of that. And, and actually we had a conference call scheduled for earlier in the week. Um, and she was supposed to call me and, and she didn't, maybe because she was busy with cucumbers. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how big CDC is or how much they, they get, they get, um, they all get you know, seconded to do, to do other work. Um, it could be, she just forgot to, but, but, but in my analysis, uh, looking at like, what are the factors in a restaurant that actually contribute to significant differences in cooling rates? Uh, turns out the single, like there's a bunch of factors that are kind of borderline, like, like P value, you know, 0.03, right. The, there's one p-value that's like one uh, times ten to the minus sixth, and that is having a plan for how to cool foods. <laughs> there and, you go. And mo- most of the companies have a plan for how to cool foods. There's there's a small number of company, a small number of inspections. And again, it, well, it's not a balanced design. So I mean, you've got like 300 people doing this, and and like 25 people doing that, or 25 foods with this, and 300 foods doing that. But Turns out that is a phenomenally good way to have successful or to have a faster cooling rate is have a plan on how you're going to cool foods. Um, and again, you know, we, we, I looked at across a variety of different factors. It turns out that's the one that's, that's most important. And so, of course, that's not science, right? I mean, we're going to try to make it into a peer-reviewed publication. But, but uh, yeah, so it turns out that, that that's, that's the single most best way to, to cool food successfully is to have a plan in place to cool food successfully. That's fascinating. That's yeah. Yes. Yes. For someone who spends a bunch of time on plans and trying to come up with plans and implementing plans and following plans and all that kind of stuff, that's that's really that's really cool. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Hmm. There you go. More, um, more, more to come. Good. Good. Stay. Uh, stay tuned. To be continued. Indeed, as, as they say. Um. So I have one more thing on our on my list. Sure. And it's and it's kind of a quick one, and it's something that got a bunch of like national international attention that I'm like adjacent to, and you're adjacent to, and it's this uh, vomiting machine mm. that uh, that Leanne uh, Leanne Jacobs is a graduate student uh, Grace um, Grace 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 Grace's last name. Oh, it's Grace a hyphenated Thompson, last Grace name. Grace Thompson Tongue. Grace yes. Thompson. Yes. Uh, she uh, she created uh, with with another graduate student who's at NC State who I don't know, uh, and then uh, modeled aerosolization of vomit, and and it's it, it's pretty awesome, and people like it got crazy crazy pickup. Um, I talked to to Leanne a little bit about it, and and she did more media discussion follow up on this than than pretty much anything else that she'd ever been part of people it seems that are they are very interested in vomit there it, it makes for a good story and there's a beautiful visual uh associated with this vomit machine that is that it has a clay mask that is kind of creepy um, yes indeed which which uh, and we'll link to this in in show notes um the clay mask serves a purpose, right? <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. Oh, like to provide like proper uh, like back backflow or proje- or whatever. It's, it's to get the proper, physics right, right? Right. It's the proper angle, angle of the mouth. Yeah. 
Um, so it so it looks really creepy, but it was needed. And and so anyway, the the background on on this is. Um, we've known epidemiologically for quite some time, or we thought from from the epi studies on outbreaks that aerosolization of uh, vomit it was possible, and that that was a contributing factor in norovirus outbreaks or other foodborne virus uh, outbreaks. And so, what what Grace did was she designed uh, a, a system to really model this in a vacuum to show that dispersion, um, or not in a vacuum in a chamber, to show that that yeah things can get aerosolized and that it can carry. And she did a couple of other experiments on, you know, simulated vomit and how far it would uh, travel if it was, um, you know, uh, tipped, you know, came out of a bucket, not just with a full vomit kind of, you know, cough kind of situation, but if it was just poured out and where it would splash to and all this kind of stuff. And it really matters. Like this kind of stuff for for the places that, that we work with, it really matters because you've got restaurants and facilities and schools that are like, look, someone threw up here and whether it's norovirus or not, we have to figure out how far around that area we need to clean up. And do we, should we shut down the ventilation system? Because if it's aerosolized, do we just want it to like have a predictive place where it's going to fall? What are all the things that we need to kind of worry about um, in, in this uh, in a vomit kind of setting, and and not not all those questions are answered, but some of the you know some of the signs on on how it gets aerosolized and what those um, w- what it looks like in in this chamber and how far it goes is uh, w- was answered by some of Grace's work, and it's it was cool. It was uh, there was a lot of a lot of stuff um, out there. Yeah, and in fact, Ben, I don't know if you know this, but I recently gave a talk in Brazil called Modeling the Risks Associated with Virus and and Parasites in Food. And in fact, um, uh, Grace uh, Tung Tongson's uh, vomiting machine was a big hit. So I did not not show the the photograph that they have on the uh, NPR blog, which we we will link to, but I showed the schematic diagram from the paper, which is also equally humorous, showing the Tygon tubing, the face mold, and then green-colored vomitus inside this uh, uh, this plunger and so and in fact yes and we'll, we'll also link to the paper by Marks et al um, yes. uh, basically talking about uh, the, the title of the article is evidence for airborne transmission of Norwalk like virus in a hotel restaurant and and in, in fact uh, that was published in 2000 Grace's paper was from 2015 so 15 years later we're finally getting some science behind this, but but the the paper uh, the paper from Marx et al is fascinating, and, and again we'll we'll link to it in in the show notes. But I just want to describe it for the for the listeners because I think it's fascinating. So there is a figure three in that manuscript, which basically shows a schematic of the restaurant. It shows the position of the vomiter, um, and then the position of a ceiling mounted extractor fan, two other ceiling mounted fans, and then the relative attack rates at the different tables. So the attack rate uh, that is people exposed over people ill, uh, people ill over people exposed at the the table where the vomitor was located is 91 percent. If you move to one table uh, uh, to the to the north of that, it's 71 percent. One table to the south of that, it's 56 percent. Um, and then there's no more tables to the north. There's just a wall. And then if you move you move south, it's 50 percent, 40 percent. And then it looks like another table that might be in a separate room, um, that uh, attack rate is 25%. So, so clearly, there is a proximity effect. Obviously, there's air flows and lots of complicated stuff going on. Um, and then, and then, and then uh, Grace's work is, is absolutely fascinating. So she studied um, uh, uh, low-viscosity vomit with a low-titer. 
low viscosity vomit with a high titer of, 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 uh, of the, the virus, uh, that's uh, MS2 virus as a neurovirus surrogate, and then a high viscosity, high titer, and then uh, looked at a variety of different coughing scenarios. They looked at um, uh, uh, the, the pressure that the vomit was under, 115 uh, millimeters mercury, 290 millimeters mercury, and then uh, 1283 millimeters mercury, which is apparently the pressure from projectile vomiting. So basically looking, spanning one order of magnitude. And it turns out that with more pressure, you get more spread. Um, turns out there's a difference between high titer and low titer. And then turns out um, there, there does seem to be not too much difference between low viscosity and high viscosity vomit. But the other thing, and I think this is what got the biggest reaction from my audience, they studied uh, uh, 290 millimeters of mercury uh, pressure plus 290 plus coughing because apparently um, there were people that were watching videos of people vomiting and discovered that sometimes when you vomit, you cough to clear the vomitus from your mouth. And so that was an important variable to include in these studies. What is the event? Yes. And so t- telling, telling people in the audience that not only were people videotaping people vomiting, but people were watching the videotapes and, and trying to figure out what was going on. And of course, which led someone to ask, who, who did this? And, and it turns out if you read the study, it's not exactly clear. I suspect that they found videos on YouTube and it was just the the investigators who watched those videos but but that that the the um uh, the, the article was was silent on the details of the videos and, and who watched them so I can give you the details <laughs> I was on Grace's uh, graduate uh, committee excellent and Grace uh, watched those watched those videos I believe and and it came out of this sort of discussion at one of her committee meetings on go to YouTube and let's watch mm. some of these videos. There also, while she was trying to um, figure out that cough situation, we have a race here called the Krispy Kreme Challenge. Oh, uh, we've talked about this. We have, we have, and this the the myth, the, not the myth, the lore of the Krispy Kreme Challenge is when you get. So the challenge is starting uh, on NC State campus. You run two and a half miles to downtown Raleigh to the one of the original Krispy Kreme. Um, outlets. You get a dozen donuts, you eat those dozen donuts, and then you run back to NC State campus. So it's a five mile run. <laughs> and then you vomit. And then you vomit. And you have, you know, you have an hour to do it. And so the, the lore is the finish line, which is right in front of our um, bell tower, which is the sort of icon of, of NC State. Um, there's a bunch of like vomit by people getting there and just you know throwing up. I've I've run the Krispy Kreme challenge three, two or three times. And and I've seen a couple. Of, it's I'd like some vomit streaks, but I've not seen like a a vomit wasteland uh, at the uh, at, you know at the finish line. But anyway, the Krispy Kreme challenge was being run um, either two or three days or a week after Grace's uh, committee meeting, and and so we made the suggestion that she goes and watches to see if people vomit there and count the coughs. Nice. <laughs> yeah, nice. it was pretty good. I was happy. Like I'm like I said, I was very. Um, I, I, you know, I was adjacent to that, to that study and, uh, was just, I mean, so happy to be part of it, um, in a advisory role for, for grace uh, throughout the three years. And every time I left one of the committee meetings, I was like, man, this is a, this is one of the greatest things ever. And, and could right see from the start, like people are going to talk about this one, like, and and it's going to matter. And, and, And that's exactly what happened. It was pretty, it's been pretty cool. 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 
Well, hey, we talked a long time today. We did. Hour and 41 minutes and 53 seconds. I think we should call that a show. I think it's a show. All right. Well, hey, I haven't looked on the... On, on the iTunes uh, for a while to see if anybody's rating us or any, anything anymore. Um, so maybe, maybe there, maybe people do, maybe they don't. Um, if, if you like the show and you've uh, made it through the first 40 minutes where we don't talk about food safety and you get to the last hour where we do talk about food safety and you like one of those things or neither of them, or you love them both or whatever it is, go ahead and head, head over to uh, iTunes, uh, rate us, let us know, leave some comments um so yeah just uh let us let us know what you think yeah and and, and uh, people are continuing to subscribe to our newsletter and and so that what the newsletter does is is it basically tells you when we post a new episode it gives you the show notes for that episode um so please do sign up for that um i mean i know our our, our numbers keep climbing steadily week by week and so there are more people uh, finding the show and listening to the show and and please do um please do rate us in itunes please do send us a message uh you can certainly leave comments um on the website but there's also a way to send us a message if you have questions for us or comments for us uh you know we're, we're always happy to hear from from listeners and you know learn learn what you like about the show or what you don't like we probably won't change it i mean you can send us you know what you don't like but we're probably not going to change it um but but we do we do very much would appreciate um hearing from you and of course if you'd like to leave us a, a, a review in itunes we always appreciate that absolutely and uh yeah and as always don i have fun time talking to you absolutely this was a good one Dan. it was good so uh thanks a lot and uh we'll talk to you later all right bye Cool. Okay, so this one is what number and who's doing the Ugh, who does who does the damn, damned if I know. Um, it's in the, and I don't have a recording, so okay. So, but you throw it up in the in the in the D box. <laughs> <laughs> throw up in the where? Throw it up in the D box. I think you know what that means. <laughs> I do. I do. Sadly, I do. Uh, um, eighty-five. Uh, no, eighty-five might be the one with Dan. 85 is the one with Dan. I'm going to change that right now. Yeah, well, okay. So, yeah, I, I, ch- I did change it. I don't know. That's oh, weird. Oh, wait, but it, wait, wait. Maybe I'm, on, I'm not on the – where's my Dropbox? Skype. Oh, something's going on here. I closed Dropbox. Uh, I, did, I did too, but but I, I updated it after our abortive episode on Monday. So 
I am not. I think I might have closed Dropbox a long time ago. Is what I'm saying. Oh, like it's okay. not on, which is fine. Which is because I'm not. I'm not going to change anything. I'm just going to okay. fire Dropbox. Okay, again. that sounds good. So, uh, so I'm going to make a new folder and I'm going to call it FFST. 86? 86. 86 it. 86 it. Uh, Is that whoops. offensive? I don't know what that means. I know that. I don't think so. <laughs> no more offensive than the black no. biologist moving back to Canada. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so 86, uh, is, uh, um, well, 80, so it looks like you have the odd ones because ben, so. ben and Beth have 83. So this would be Don and Ann. Yeah. Oh, this is fascinating. There are several possible origins of the term 86. Oh. In 1928, all electrical components of the power system then being installed across the United States were given standardized numbers to show their functional use on all electrical power circuit diagrams. The ANSI, uh, you know, American National yeah. Standards Association, standard device numbers uh, denote what protective blah, blah, blah. blah. 80, an 86 device is a lockout breaker. So it means it shuts it down. Huh. Also, another possible origin uh, is something from the Navy. Um, it means mothballed, and it is an AT6, as in AT code, ah. like the letters, okay. six, but being pronounced 86. Author Jeff Klein points to the bar Chumley's at 86 Bedford Street in Lower Manhattan um, as the as the source. In the Prohibition Era raid, they tell the bartender to 86 his customers, meaning they should scram out of the 86 Bedford door. You reading from Wikipedia? Yeah, straight out of Wikipedia. Okay, I'm I'm reading from something called uh, Mental Floss, which which basically has similar but but not quite the same uh, answers. So, does it mention the Empire State Building? It does not. The first or lower elevators only went as far as the observation promenade on the 86th floor. floor. And sometimes people would jump off the 86th floor to commit suicide. Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. And there's another one. The term 86 may come from the movie business in Hollywood. When shooting on color film, a camera needs an 85 filter, which is amber in color to balance the daylight. When moving indoors... Under tungsten light, the filter is removed or replaced with a clear filter, and that's called the 86 filter. Huh. So 86. This is a popular number. I might it change is. my hockey number to 86. Wow. There, there's like, there is like literally dozens of possible origins. Amazing. And, and the, the most widely, according to Wikipedia, the most widely accepted theory, uh, it relates to a code supposedly used in some restaurants where 86 was a short form among restaurant workers for we're all out of it. We're all out of it. There you go. How about that? So, so I will, uh, yeah, I'll see you uh, in a couple of weeks at this thing. Yeah. Soon. And my, my friend, my friend from the Good Lovelies, Carrie O, mm-hmm. one, of the good, one of the lovely Good Lovelies, mm-hmm. uh, she sent me a message on Facebook, said she's really excited to see, see me and my fr- food safety nerd friends. Oh, that's awesome. She's, she, I, I do want to let you know that this is, um, so, I mean, not all, whoever's listening to us doesn't know this whole thing. But um, you and I are going to go to a concert from one of my friends from high school. Her name is uh, Carrie O, and they, she's part of this band called The Good Lovelies. And they're, like, famous in Canada. Wow. Famous yeah. in Canada. Isn't that a title of an album? Uh, maybe. I think you're thinking of I Have a Girlfriend. You wouldn't know her. She's in Canada. <laughs> Could well, be. 
You, uh, but they're like, like they're they're really good, and they're they're like a big deal. They won uh, Juno awards. Wow, Juno awards are the Canadian equivalent of uh, Grammys. Wow, they um, uh, they won the 2010 Juno Award and were a nominee for the 2012 Roots Album of the Year. And they've been awarded Vocal Group of the Year in 2011 at the Canadian Folk Music Awards. They're uh, they're a big deal. I'm gonna get huh. you some of their music. All right. They're really nice. They're, they're they're they are lovely lovelies. And good too. They're very good. Very good. Um so so anyway, I'm looking forward to exposing you you and uh to some new music. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. It should be should be fun. It'll be fun. Okay, cool. Well I'll see you uh in a couple of weeks. All right. Bye Don. Bye Ben.